The Secret of Mary by St. Louis Mary de Montfort Neil Abstott, Thomas W. Smitty Imprimatur, Thomas Edmundus Malloy Part 1. Doctrine of the Holy Slavery The Secret of Mary A Secret of Sanctity Introduction Predestinate soul, here is a secret the Most High has taught me, which I have not been able to find in any book, old or new. A footnote. The holy slavery of Jesus in Mary was known, no doubt, before St. Louis de Montfort's time. Yet he rightly calls this devotion a secret. First, because there lies in it, as in all things supernatural, a hidden treasure which grace alone can help us to find and utilize. Secondly, because there are but few souls that enter into the spirit of this devotion and go beyond its exterior practices. Again, as no one had as yet thoroughly explained this devotion, nor shaped it into a definite method of spiritual life, St. Louis de Montfort would say of a truth, I have not been able to find this secret in any book old or new. I confide it to you by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost on condition one, that you communicate it only to those who deserve it by their prayers, their alms deeds, and mortifications, by the persecutions they suffer, by their detachment from the world, and their zeal for the salvation of souls. A footnote. These words show how highly St. Louis de Montfort esteemed this devotion, as there are professional secrets committed only to men who know how to appreciate and exploit them, so this secret of sanctity must be entrusted only to such souls as truly concern themselves with their perfection, and following the recommendations of our Lord not to profane holy things, Montfort preserves this secret with a holy jealousy that denotes respect for divine things. That you make use of it for your personal sanctification and salvation, for this secret works its effect on a soul only in proportion to the use made of it. Beware, then, of remaining inactive while possessing my secret. It would turn into a poison and be your condemnation. That you thank God all the days of your life by the grace he has given you to know a secret you do not deserve to know. As you go on making use of this secret in the ordinary actions of your life, you will comprehend its value and its excellence, which at first you will not fully understand because of your many and grievous sins and because of your secret attachment to self. A footnote. These words contain three important counsels. One, this devotion must be practiced in the ordinary course of life as well as in the most important actions. Two, only when we steadily persevere in it and not merely try it for a few weeks shall we be able to judge of its excellence and know its fruit. Three, it is necessary to remove all hindrances to this devotion, namely sin and secret affection for that which is sinful. Before you go any further, lest you should be carried away by a too eager and natural desire to know this truth, 
kneel down and say devoutly, the Ave Maristella, and the Veni Creator, in order to understand and appreciate this divine mystery. Let us not make light of this recommendation. It is an important one. If many persons do not become acquainted with the secret of this devotion, it is because they forget that in order to be allowed to enter this garden enclosed, as Mary is called, they must entreat the Holy Ghost, who searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God, to grant them that favor. As I have not much time for writing, nor you for reading, I shall say everything as briefly as possible. 1. Our sanctification, necessity of sanctifying ourselves, the will of God. Faithful soul, living image of God, redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, it is the will of God that you be holy like Him in this life and glorious like Him in the next. Your sure vocation is the acquisition of the holiness of God, and unless all your thoughts and words and actions, all the sufferings and events of your life, tend to that end, you are resisting God by not doing that for which He has created you and is now preserving you. A footnote. Those who begin this devotion are here reminded of the recommendation of the masters of the spiritual life, namely that the interior life must be their chief concern. They must be determined to obtain good results bought with the price of sacrifice. Compare these words with the St. Louis de Montfort's advice on cultivating the tree of life. Oh, what an admirable work! to change that which is dust into light, to make pure that which is unclean, holy that which is sinful, to make the creature like its creator, man like God. Admirable work, I repeat, but difficult in itself and impossible to mere nature. Only God, by His grace, by His abundant and extraordinary grace, can accomplish it. Even the creation of the whole world is not so great a masterpiece as this. Means of Sanctification Predestinate soul, how are you to do it? What means will you choose to reach the height of which God calls you? The means of salvation and sanctification are known to all. They are laid down in the gospel, explained by the masters of the spiritual life, practiced by the saints, and necessary to all who wish to be saved and to attain perfection. They are humility of heart, continual prayer, mortification in all things, abandonment to divine providence, and conformity to the will of God. To practice all these means of salvation and sanctification, the grace of God is absolutely necessary. No one can doubt that God gives His grace to all in a more or less abundant measure. I say in a more or less abundant measure, for God, although infinitely good, does not give equal grace to all, yet to each soul He gives sufficient grace. The faithful soul will, with great grace, perform a great action, and with less grace, a lesser action. It is the value and excellence of the grace bestowed by God and corresponded to by the soul that gives to our actions their value and their excellence. These principles are certain.
an easy means. It all comes to this, then, that you should find an easy means for obtaining from God the grace necessary to make you holy. And this means I wish to make known to you. Now I say that to find this grace of God, we must find Mary. A footnote, this is characteristic of St. Louis de Montfort's devotion and makes it a special method of spiritual life. Our Sanctification Through Mary A footnote, the reasons given here to prove that Mary is the most perfect means for finding Jesus are a condensed treatise on Mariology. If the faithful meditate on these points, they will come to understand the function assigned to Our Lady by virtue of her divine maternity in the mystery of the Incarnation and now in the whole Church. A Necessary Means Mary alone has found grace with God, both for herself and for every man in particular. The patriarchs and prophets and all the saints of the old law were not able to find that grace. Mary gave being and life to the author of all grace, and that is why she is called the Mother of Grace. God the Father, from whom every perfect gift and all grace come, as from its essential source, has given all graces to Mary by giving her his Son, so that, as St. Bernard says, with his Son and in him God has given his will to Mary. God has entrusted Mary with the keeping, the administration, and distribution of all his graces, so that all his graces and gifts pass through her hands, and according to the power she has received over them. As St. Bernadine teaches, Mary gives to whom she wills, the way she wills, when she wills, and as much as she wills, the graces of the Eternal Father, the virtues of Jesus Christ, and the gifts of the Holy Ghost. As in the order of nature, a child must have a father and a mother, so likewise in the order of grace, a true child of the Church must have God for his father and Mary for his mother. And if anyone should glory in having God for his father, and yet has not the love of a true child for Mary, he is a deceiver, and the only father he has is the devil. Since Mary has formed Jesus Christ at the head of the elect, it is also her office to form the members of that head, that is to say, all true Christians. For a mother does not form the head without the members, nor the members without the head. Whoever, therefore, wishes to be a member of Jesus Christ, full of grace and truth, must be formed in Mary by means of the grace of Jesus Christ, which she possesses in its fullness in order to communicate it fully to her children, the true members of Jesus Christ. A footnote. Conclude from this that we call Mary our mother, not because of mere feelings of piety and gratitude awakened in us by the conviction that she loves and protects us, but because she is our mother in the spiritual order as truly as she is the mother of Christ in the natural order. The spiritual motherhood of Mary, a consequence of her divine motherhood, is one of the truths on which the true devotion of St. Louis de Montfort is founded. As the Holy Ghost has espoused Mary and has produced in her, by her, 
and from her his masterpiece, Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, and has never repudiated his spouse, so he now continues to produce the elect in her and by her in a mysterious but real manner. Mary has received a special office and power over our souls in order to nourish them and give them growth in God. St. Augustine even says that during their present life all the elect are hidden in Mary's womb and that they are not truly born until the Blessed Mother brings them forth to life eternal. Consequently, just as the child draws all its nourishment from the mother who gives it in proportion to the child's weakness, in like manner do the elect draw all their spiritual nourishment and strength from Mary. It is to Mary that God the Father said, My daughter, let thy dwelling be in Jacob, that is, in my elect, prefigured by Jacob. It is to Mary that God the Son said, My dear mother, in Israel is thine inheritance, that is, in the elect. And it is to Mary that the Holy Ghost said, Take root, my faithful spouse, in my elect. Whoever then is elect and predestinate has the Blessed Virgin with him, dwelling in his soul. And he will allow her to plant there the roots of profound humility, of ardent charity, and of every virtue. A footnote. This abode of Mary in our soul may be explained in the following manner. Her presence in us cannot be compared to that of God living in our soul by sanctifying grace and thus making us partakers of his divine life. Neither must we believe that Mary is bodily present in our soul. Some have wrongfully charged St. Louis de Montfort with inferring the omnipresence of Mary. But let us bear in mind Mary's privilege of being truly the mother of God, which privilege is hers personally and exclusively. As a consequence of that privilege, Mary beholds our souls in a universal manner, and more excellently than the saints and angels do in their heavenly glory. And she is with us, really, individually, intimately. Thus, we are morally present to her, and she is morally present to us, because by her prayers, her attentions, and her influence, she cooperates with the Holy Ghost in forming Jesus in our souls. By way of comparison, we might say that Mary is present in our souls as the sun is present in a room by its light and warmth, even though it is not there itself. St. Augustine calls Mary the living mold of God, and that indeed she is, for it was her alone that God was made a true man without losing any feature in the Godhead, and it is also in her alone that man can be truly formed into God insofar as that is possible for human nature by the grace of Jesus Christ. A sculptor has two ways of making a lifelike statue or figure. He may carve the figure out of some hard, shapeless material, using for this purpose his professional skill and knowledge, his strength and the necessary instruments, or he may cast it in a mold. The first manner is long and difficult, and subject to many mishaps. A single blow of the hammer or chisel, awkwardly given, may spoil the whole work. 
The second is short, easy and smooth. It requires but little work and slight expense, provided the mold be perfect and made to reproduce the figure exactly, provided, moreover, the material used offer no resistance to the hand of the artist. A footnote. Therefore, great docility is required on our part if we would be formed quickly, easily, and gently. This comparison of the mold explains very well the interior practice of this devotion. The devotion consists essentially in one single act, which under various forms and conditions we apply to our whole life, both interior and exterior. Such is the simplicity of St. Louis de Montfort's method. Mary is the great mold of God, made by the Holy Ghost, to form a true God-man by the hypostatic union, and to form also a man-God by grace. In that mold, none of the features of the Godhead is wanting. Whoever is cast in it and allows himself to be molded receives all the features of Jesus Christ, true God. The work is done gently, in a manner proportioned to human weakness, without much labor or pain, in a sure manner, free from all illusion, for where Mary is, the devil has never had and never will have access. Finally, it is done in a holy and spotless manner, without a shadow of the least stain of sin. Oh, what a difference between a soul which has been formed in Christ by the ordinary ways of those who, like the sculptor, trust in their own skill and ingenuity, and a soul thoroughly tractable entirely detached and well molten, which, without trusting to its own skill, casts itself into Mary, there to be molded by the Holy Ghost. How many stains and defects and illusions, how much darkness, and how much human nature is there in the former, and oh, how pure, how heavenly, and how Christ-like is the latter. There does not exist, and never will exist, a creature in whom God, either within or without himself, is so highly exalted as he is in the most blessed Virgin Mary, not excepting the saints or the cherubim or the highest seraphim in paradise. Mary is the paradise of God and his unspeakable world, into which the Son of God has come to work his wonders, to watch over it and take his delight in it. God has made a world for wayfaring man, which is that world in which we dwell. He has made one for man in his glorified state, which is heaven, and he has made one for himself, which he has called Mary. It is a world unknown to most mortals here below, and incomprehensible even to the angels and blessed in heaven above, who, seeing God so highly exalted above them all, and so deeply hidden in Mary, his world, are filled with admiration and unceasingly exclaim, Holy, holy, holy. Happy, a thousand times happy, is the soul here below, to which the Holy Ghost reveals the secret of Mary, in order that it may come to know her, to which he opens the garden enclosed, that it may enter into it, to which he gives access to that fountain sealed, that it may draw from it, and drink deep draughts of the living waters of grace. That soul will find God alone in his most amiable creature, 
it will find God infinitely holy and exalted, yet at the same time adapting himself to its own weakness. Since God is present everywhere, he may be found everywhere, even in hell, but nowhere do we creatures find him nearer to us and more adapted to our weakness than in Mary, since it was for that end that he came and dwelt in her. Everywhere else he is the bread of the strong, the bread of the angels, but in Mary he is the bread of children. A footnote. This beautiful expression interprets the invitation of divine wisdom. Come, eat the bread and drink the wine which I have mingled for you. It also accounts for the unexpected graces which this devotion draws upon those who persevere in its practice. Note that this method of spiritual formation is practically the same as the education given by a mother to her child. In ourselves we experience the infirmities and the wants of infancy. In Mary we find the strong and never-wearied love of a mother. All that we have to do is to abandon ourselves to Mary and to remain dependent on her in all things, just like her children. Let us not imagine then, as some do who are misled by erroneous teachings, that Mary, being a creature, is a hindrance to our union with the Creator. It is no longer Mary who lives, it is Jesus Christ. It is God alone who lives in her. Her transformation into God surpasses that of St. Paul and of the other saints more than the heavens surpass the earth by their height. Mary is made for God alone, and far from ever detaining a soul in herself, she casts the soul upon God and unites it with Him so much the more perfectly as the soul is more perfectly united to her. Mary is the admirable echo of God. When we say Mary, she answers, God. When with St. Elizabeth we call her blessed, she glorifies God. If the falsely enlightened, whom the devil has so miserably illusioned, even in prayer, had known how to find Mary, and through her to find Jesus, and through Jesus God the Father, they would not have had such terrible falls. The saints tell us that when we have once found Mary, and through Mary Jesus, and through Jesus God the Father, we have found all good. He who says all, accepts nothing, all grace and all friendship with God, all safety from God's enemies, all truth to crush falsehoods, all facility to overcome difficulties in the way of salvation, all comfort and all joy amidst the bitterness of life. This does not mean that he who has found Mary by a true devotion will be exempt from crosses and sufferings. A footnote. St. Louis de Montfort has explained that his true devotion is an easy means of sanctification, yet he wishes to guard us against the common illusion that his method exempts us from spiritual labor and sufferings. He is himself a striking example of the manly education which Mary, the valiant woman, gives to her children, as well as of the love of Jesus crucified which she enkindles in their hearts. Far from it, he is more besieged by them than others are because Mary, the mother of the living, 
gives to all her children portions of the tree of life, which is the cross of Jesus. But along with their crosses, she also imparts the grace to carry them patiently and even cheerfully. And thus it is that the crosses which she lays upon those who belong to her are rather steeped in sweetness than filled with bitterness. If for a while her children feel the bitterness of the cup which one must needs drink in order to be the friend of God, the consolation and joy which this good mother sends after the trial encourage them exceedingly to carry still heavier and more painful crosses. The difficulty, then, is to find really and truly the most blessed Virgin Mary in order to find all abundant grace. God, being the absolute master, can confer directly by himself that which he usually grants only through Mary. It would even be rash to deny that sometimes he does so. Nevertheless, St. Thomas teaches that in the order of grace, established by divine wisdom, God ordinarily communicates himself to men only through Mary. Therefore, if we would go up to him and be united with him, we must use the same means he used to come down to us and be made man and to impart his graces to us. That means is a true devotion to our Blessed Lady. Our sanctification by the perfect devotion to the Blessed Virgin or the holy slavery of love, a perfect means. There are several true devotions to Our Lady. Here I do not speak of those that are false. The first consists in fulfilling our Christian duties, avoiding mortal sin, acting more out of love than fear, praying to Our Lady now and then, honoring her as the Mother of God, yet without having any special devotion to her. The second consists in entertaining for Our Lady more perfect feelings of esteem and love, of confidence and veneration. It leads us to join the confraternities of the Holy Rosary and the Scapular, to recite the five decades or the fifteen decades of the Rosary, to honor Mary's images and altars, to publish her praises, and to enroll ourselves in her sodalities. A footnote. All such devotions, remarks St. Louis de Montfort elsewhere, include but a limited number of devout practices and take up but a part of our daily life, while the one he proposes embraces our whole life and divests us of all things. This devotion is good, holy, and praiseworthy if we keep ourselves free from sin but it is not so perfect as the next, nor so efficient in severing our soul from creatures or in detaching us from ourselves in order to be united with Jesus Christ. The third devotion to Our Lady, known and practiced by very few persons, is the one I am now about to disclose to you, predestinate soul. Nature and scope of the holy slavery of love. It consists in giving oneself entirely and as a slave to Mary and to Jesus through Mary, and after that to do all that we do through Mary, with Mary, in Mary, and for Mary. I shall now explain these words. First a footnote. We must therefore note two things in this devotion. First, 
an act of total consecration to Jesus through Mary, and secondly, a state of being consecrated. That state consists in the permanent disposition of living and acting habitually in dependence on Mary, and that is called the spirit or the interior part of this consecration. This practice, although it embraces our entire life, appears so small and trifling at first glance that St. Louis de Montfort has justly compared it to the mustard seed. But one comes to realize its vital energy and its wonderful effects when it has grown strong by persistent exercise. We should choose a special feast day on which we give, consecrate, and sacrifice to Mary voluntarily, lovingly, and without constraint, entirely and without reserve, our body and soul, our exterior property, such as house, family, and income, and also our interior and spiritual possessions, namely our merits, graces, virtues, and satisfactions. A footnote. These words show us the far-reaching effect of this consecration, which St. Louis de Montfort calls a perfect renewal of the baptismal vows. And indeed, in making it, we give ourselves anew to Jesus Christ our Lord through the hands of Mary. It should be observed here that by this devotion the soul sacrifices to Jesus through Mary all that it holds most dear, things of which even no religious order would require the sacrifice, namely, the right to dispose of ourselves, of the value of our prayers and alms, of our mortifications and satisfactions. The soul leaves everything to be freely disposed of by Our Lady, so that she may apply it all according to her own will for the greater glory of God, which she alone knows perfectly. We leave to her disposal of all the satisfactory and impetrary value of our good works, so that after we have made the sacrifice of them, although not by vow, we are no longer the masters of any good works we may do. But Our Lady may apply them, sometimes for the relief or the deliverance of a soul in purgatory, sometimes for the conversion of a poor sinner, and so forth. A footnote. It may not be amiss to give here a short explanation of the heroic act of charity and to point out in what it differs from this act of consecration. According to the definition of the Sacred Congregation of Indulgences, December 1885, the heroic act of charity consists in this, that a member of the church militant offers to God for the souls in purgatory all the satisfactory works which he will perform during his lifetime, and also all the suffrages which may accrue to him after death. By the act of consecration to Jesus through Mary, as taught by St. Louis de Montfort, we give to Our Lady not only the satisfactory works of our life, but all else, nothing excepted. The use to be made of our good works and satisfactions is not determined by us, as it is in the heroic act, but it is left to Mary's intention and will. In this act of consecration, St. Louis de Montfort does not seem to comprise directly the suffrages which may accrue to us in purgatory, but indirectly they are implied. I leave to thee all that belongs to me, in time 
and in eternity. Neither the heroic act nor our act of consecration implies a vow, yet both may be made with a vow if discretion and sound judgment are not lacking in making such a solemn promise to God. Continuing by this devotion, we also place our merits in the hands of Our Lady, but only that she may preserve, augment, and embellish them, because we cannot communicate to one another either the merits of sanctifying grace or those of glory. However, we give her all our prayers and good works, inasmuch as they have an impetratory and satisfactory value, that she may distribute and apply them to whom she pleases. If after having thus consecrated ourselves to Our Lady, we desire to relieve a soul in purgatory, to save a sinner, or to assist a friend by our prayers, our almdeeds, our mortifications and sacrifices, we must humbly ask it of Our Lady, abiding, however, by her decision, which remains unknown to us. And we must be fully persuaded that the value of our actions being dispensed by the same hand which God himself makes use of to distribute to us his graces and gifts, cannot fail to be applied for his greater glory. I have said that this devotion consists in giving ourselves to Mary as slaves. A footnote. These words show us the true nature of this consecration. By making it, we place ourselves in a state in which we are owned by Jesus and Mary, and are totally dependent on their will. Now that is the nature and condition of a slave. But to remove the idea of there being any degradation or tyrannical violence in this noble servitude, St. Louis de Montfort explains that it is a voluntary slavery, full of honor and of love, giving us the liberty of the true children of God. There is then no reason for being scared or repelled by the word slave and slavery. Consider the state, not the word, which expresses the state of total, of lasting, and disinterested subjection and dependence on the master through the mother. One may ask, why not use other words? It is because there are none to express adequately this special state of consecration. Continuing, but notice that there are three kinds of slavery. The first is a slavery of nature. In this sense, all men, good and bad alike, are slaves of God. The second is the slavery of constraint. The devils and the damned are slaves of God in this second sense. The third is the slavery of love and of free will, and this is the one by which we must consecrate ourselves to God through Mary. It is the most perfect way for us human creatures to give ourselves to God, our Creator. Notice again that there is a great difference between a servant and a slave. A servant claims wages for his services. A slave has a right to none. A servant is free to leave his master when he likes. He serves him only for a time. A slave belongs to his master for life and has no right to leave him. A servant does not give to his master the right of life and death over him. A slave gives himself up entirely so that his master can put him to death without being molested by the law. It is easily seen then that he who is a slave by constraint is rigorously dependent on his master. 
Strictly speaking, a man must be dependent in that sense only on his Creator. Hence, we do not find that kind of slavery among Christians, but only among pagans. But happy, and a thousand times happy, is a generous soul that consecrates itself entirely to Jesus through Mary as a slave of love after it has shaken off by baptism the tyrannical slavery of the devil. Excellence of the Holy Slavery of Love I should require much supernatural light to describe perfectly the excellence of this practice. I shall content myself with these few remarks. To give ourselves to Jesus through Mary is to imitate God the Father, who has given us his Son only through Mary, and who communicates to us his grace only through Mary. It is to imitate God the Son, who has come to us only through Mary, and who, by giving us an example, that as he has done, so we do also, he has urged us to go to him by the same means by which he has come to us, that is, through Mary. It is to imitate the Holy Ghost, who bestows his graces and gifts upon us only through Mary. Is it not fitting, asks St. Bernard, that grace should return to its author by the same channel which conveyed it to us? To go to Jesus through Mary is truly to honor Jesus Christ, for it denotes that we do not esteem ourselves worthy of approaching his infinite holiness directly and by ourselves because of our sins, that we need Mary, his holy mother, to be our advocate and mediatrix with him, our mediator. It is to approach Jesus as our mediator and brother, and at the same time to humble ourselves before him as before our God and our judge. In a word, it is to practice humility, which is always exceedingly pleasing to the heart of God. To consecrate ourselves thus to Jesus through Mary is to place in Mary's hands our good actions, which, although they may appear to us to be good, are often very imperfect and unworthy of the sight and acceptance of God, before whom even the stars are not pure. Ah, let us pray then to our dear Mother and Queen, that having received our poor present, she may purify it, sanctify it, embellish it, and thus render it worthy of God. All that our soul possesses is of less value before God, the heavenly householder, when it comes to winning his friendship and favor than a worm-eaten apple presented to the king by a poor farmer in payment for the rent of his farm. But what would such a farmer do if he were wise, and if he were well-liked by the queen? Would he not give his apple to the queen, and would she not, out of kindness to the poor man, as also out of respect for the king, remove from the apple all that is worm-eaten or spoiled, and then place it in a gold dish and surround it with flowers? Would the king refuse to accept the apple then? Or would he not rather receive it with joy from the hands of the queen who favors that poor man? If you wish to present something to God, no matter how small it may be, says St. Bernard, place it in Mary's hands if you do not wish to be refused. Great God, how insignificant everything that we do really is! But let us place all in Mary's hands by this devotion. 
when we have given ourselves to Mary to the very utmost of our power, by despoiling ourselves completely in her honor, she will far outdo us in generosity and will repay us a hundredfold. She will communicate herself to us with her merits and virtues. She will place our presence on the golden plate of her charity. She will clothe us as Rebecca clothed Jacob with the beautiful garments of her elder and only son, Jesus Christ, that is, with his merits, which she has at her disposal. And thus, after we have despoiled ourselves of everything in her honor, we shall be clothed in double garments, that is, the garments, the ornaments, the perfumes, the merits, and the virtues of Jesus and Mary, clothe the soul of their slave, who has despoiled himself and who perseveres in his despoilation. A footnote. This charming comment on the words of St. Bernard will console and encourage certain souls who grow weary and sad when they become conscious of their unworthiness and their insufficiency. As St. Louis de Montfort loves to say, and his saying is very true, Mary will be their supplement with God. To continue, Moreover, to give ourselves thus to Our Lady is to practice charity towards our neighbor in the highest possible degree, because we give her all that we hold most dear and let her dispose of it at her will in favor of the living and the dead. By this devotion we place our graces, merits, and virtues in safety, for we make Mary the depository of them all, saying to her, See, my dear mother, here are the good works that I have been able to do through the grace of thy dear Son. I am not able to keep them on account of my own weakness and inconstancy, and also because of the many wicked enemies who attack me day and night. Alas, one may see every day the cedars of Lebanon fall into the mire, and the eagles which has raised themselves to the sun become birds of night, and so do a thousand of the just fall on my left hand and ten thousand on my right. But thou, my most powerful princess, sustain me lest I fall. Keep all my possessions for fear I may be robbed of them. All I have I entrust to thee. I know well who thou art, therefore I entrust myself entirely to thee. Thou art faithful to God and to men. Thou wilt not allow anything to perish that I entrust to thee. Thou art powerful and nothing can hurt thee, nor rob thee of anything thou holdest in thy hands. A footnote. These words ought to be considered by all who are concerned about their perseverance in grace and their interior perfection. Many there are who hesitate even to begin, and many who draw back soon after starting because they apprehend a possible failure or lack of perseverance. When you follow Mary, you will not go astray. When you pray to her, you will not despair. When you think of her, you will not err. When she sustains you, you will not fall. When she protects you, you will not fear. When she leads you, you will not become tired. When she favors you, you will arrive safely. And again, she keeps her son from striking us. She keeps the devil from hurting us. She keeps our virtues from escaping us. She keeps our merits from being destroyed. She keeps our graces from being lost. 
These are the words of St. Bernard. They express in substance all I have said. Were there but this one motive to incite in me a desire for this devotion, namely, that it is a sure means of keeping me in the grace of God, and even of increasing that grace in me, my heart ought to burn with longing for it. This devotion truly frees the soul with the liberty of the children of God, since for love of Mary we reduce ourselves freely to slavery. She, out of gratitude, will dilate our heart, intensify our love, and cause us to walk with giant steps in the way of God's commandments. She delivers the soul from weariness, sadness, and scruples. It was this devotion which our Lord taught to Mother Agnes of Jesus. A footnote, she was a Dominican nun who died in the odor of sanctity in the year 1634. It was this devotion which our Lord taught to Mother Agnes of Jesus as a sure means of delivering her from the severe suffering and perplexities which troubled her. Make thyself, he said, my mother's slave. She did so, and in a moment her troubles ceased. At the conclusion of the music, please continue on side B. To show that this devotion is rightfully authorized, it would be necessary to mention the bulls of the popes and the pastoral letters of the bishops speaking in its favor. The indulgences granted to it, the confraternities established in its honor, the examples of the many saints and illustrious persons who have practiced it. But all that I shall leave out. Interior Practices of the Holy Slavery of Love I have said that this devotion consists in doing all our actions with Mary, in Mary, through Mary, and for Mary. It is not enough to have given ourselves once as slaves to Jesus through Mary, nor is it enough to renew that act of consecration every month or every week. That alone would not make it a permanent devotion, nor could it bring the soul to that degree of perfection to which it is capable of raising it. It is not very difficult to enroll ourselves in a confraternity, nor a practice this devotion in as far as it prescribes a few vocal prayers every day. But the great difficulty is to enter into its spirit. Now its spirit consists in this, that we be interiorly dependent on Mary, that we be slaves of Mary and through her of Jesus. I have found many people who with admirable zeal have adopted the exterior practices of this holy slavery of Jesus and Mary, but I have found only a few who have accepted its interior spirit, and still fewer who have persevered in it. The essential practice of this devotion is to do all our actions with Mary. This means that we must take Our Lady as the perfect model of all we do. Before undertaking anything, we must renounce ourselves and our own views. A footnote. From these indications, however abstract, we may learn that the act of union with Mary, as understood by St. Louis de Montfort, requires two things 
in the work of our sanctification. One, the removal of all obstacles, sin and its occasions, by renouncing ourselves. And two, the union of our will with the will of God and of our actions with the impulse of divine grace. Without that self-renunciation in all things, our union with Mary would be very imperfect. Our dependence on her would be an illusion. Note also that by telling us to renounce our own views and intentions, however good they be, in order to adopt those of Mary, Montfort counsels the practice of that which is most perfect. To continue, we must place ourselves as mere nothings before God, unable of ourselves to do anything that is supernaturally good or profitable to our salvation. We must have recourse to Our Lady, uniting ourselves to her and to her intentions, although they are not known to us. And through Mary, we must unite ourselves to the intentions of Jesus Christ. In other words, we must place ourselves as instruments in the hands of Mary that she may act in us and do with us and for us whatever she pleases, and for the greater glory of her Son and through the Son for the glory of the Father, so that the whole work of our interior life and of our spiritual perfection is accomplished only by dependence on Mary. We must do all things in Mary. Now a footnote. In indicates an indwelling, an intimate union which produces unity. As St. Louis de Montfort expresses it, we must enter into Mary's interior and stay there adopting her views and feelings. Mary must become, as it were, the place and the atmosphere in which we live. Her influence must penetrate us. As soon as this disposition of our soul has become habitual, we can say that we dwell in Mary, and having thus become as one moral person with her, we abide in her and she dwells in us, in the sense explained above. We must do all things in Mary. In that is to say, we must become accustomed little by little to recollect ourselves interiorly and thus try to form within us some idea or spiritual image of Mary. St. Teresa gives similar advice to beginners for keeping recollected and united with our Lord when at prayer. She recommends the use of images, and in this she is of the same mind as St. Louis de Montfort, who had recourse to images and banners, to the erection of calvaries and of other exterior displays that appeal to the senses and elevate the soul to God. She will be, as it were, the oratory of our soul, in which we offer up all our prayers to God without fear of not being heard. She will be to us a tower of David, in which we take refuge from all our enemies, a burning lamp to enlighten our interior and to inflame us with divine love, a sacred altar upon which we contemplate God in Mary and with her. In short, Mary will be the only means used by our soul in dealing with God. She will be our universal refuge. If we pray, we will pray in Mary. If we receive Jesus in Holy Communion, we will place him in Mary, so that he may take his delight in her. If we do anything at all, we will act in Mary. 
everywhere and in all things, we will renounce ourselves. We must never go to our Lord except through Mary, through her intercession and her influence with Him. We must never be without Mary when we pray to Jesus. Lastly, we must do all our actions for Mary. This means that as slaves of this august princess, we must work only for her, for her interest and her glory, making this the immediate end of all our actions, and for the glory of God, which must be their final end. In everything we do, we must renounce our self-love, because very often self-love sets itself up in an imperceptible manner as the end of our actions. We should often repeat from the bottom of our heart, O my dear mother, it is for thee that I go here or there, for thee that I do this or that, for thee that I suffer this pain or wrong. Practical Counsels Concerning the Spirit of the Holy Slavery Beware, predestinate soul, of believing that it is more perfect to go straight to Jesus, straight to God. Without Mary, your action and your intention will be of little value. But if you go to God through Mary, your work will be Mary's work, and consequently it will be sublime and most worthy of God. A footnote. This does not mean that we may not approach our Lord directly to speak to Him in prayer or contemplation, nor does it mean that in every action of ours we must think of Mary actually and distinctly. A virtual intention is sufficient. St. Louis de Montfort indeed says that our offering or act of consecration, if renewed but once a month or once a week, we might add once a day, does not establish us in the spirit of this devotion, which is a state or a habit. Yet he remarks that our interior look towards Mary, though it be but a general and hasty look, is sufficient to renew our offering. Moreover, do not try to feel and enjoy what you say and do, but say and do everything with that pure faith which Mary had on earth, and which she will communicate to you in due time. Poor little slave, leave to your sovereign queen the clear sight of God, the raptures, the joys, the satisfactions, and the riches of heaven, and content yourself with pure faith, although full of repugnance, distractions, weariness and dryness, and say, Amen, so be it, to whatever Mary your mother does in heaven. That's the best you can do for the time being. A footnote. Useful advice to those who are but beginning and who might think that they do nothing good because they do not see or feel. St. Louis de Montfort reminds them of the truth that our union with God consists in an act of the will, in his true devotion, he says that that act may be either mental or expressed in words. It can be made in the twinkling of an eye. In his prayer to Mary, he makes us ask for detachment of the senses in our devotion. Take great care also not to torment yourself, should you not enjoy immediately the sweet presence of the Blessed Virgin in your soul. For this is a grace not given to all, and even when God, out of his great mercy, has thus favored a soul, it is always very easy to lose this grace, unless by frequent recollection the soul remains alive to that interior presence of Mary. 
Should this misfortune befall you, return calmly to your sovereign queen and make amends to her. A footnote. This interior presence of Mary is a favor St. Louis de Montfort enjoyed in an exceptional degree, as we may see by reading his life. He says it is a grace not given to all, yet he exhorts us all to practice his true devotion and promises to all without exception that Mary's soul will be in them. It is true he always insists upon the condition of perseverance in practicing this devotion, as there are, however, but few souls who remain faithful to its spirit even in a lower degree, we must say that this presence of Mary is not given to all. Wonderful effects of this interior practice. Experience will teach you much more about this devotion than I can tell you, and if you remain faithful to the little I have taught you, you will find so many rich fruits of grace in this practice that you will be surprised and filled with joy. Let us set to work then, dear soul, and by the faithful practice of this devotion, let us obtain the grace that Mary's soul may be in us to glorify the Lord, that her spirit may be in us to rejoice in God. As St. Ambrose says, Do not think that there was more glory and happiness in dwelling in Abraham's bosom, which was called paradise, than in the bosom of Mary, in which God has placed his throne, as the learned Abbot Girick says. This devotion, faithfully practiced, produces many happy effects in the soul. The most important of them all is that it establishes, even here below, Mary's life in the soul, so that it is no longer the soul that lives, but Mary living in it, for Mary's life becomes its life. And when, by an unspeakable yet real grace, the Blessed Virgin is queen in a soul, what wonders does she not work there? She is the worker of great wonders, particularly in our soul, but she works them in secret, in a way unknown to the soul itself, for where it to know, it might destroy the beauty of her works. As Mary is the fruitful virgin everywhere, she produces in the soul wherein she dwells purity of heart and body, purity of intention, and of purpose and fruitfulness in good works. Do not think, dear soul, that Mary, the most fruitful of all pure creatures, who has brought forth even a god, remains idle in a faithful soul. She will cause Jesus Christ to live in that soul, and the soul to live in constant union with Jesus Christ. My dear children, with whom I am in labor again until Christ is formed in you, if Jesus Christ is the fruit of Mary in each individual soul as well as in all souls in general, he is, however, her fruit and her masterpiece, more particularly in a soul in which she dwells. In fine, Mary becomes everything to that soul in the service of Jesus Christ. The mind will be enlightened by Mary's pure faith. The heart will be deepened by Mary's humility. It will be dilated and inflamed by Mary's charity, made clean by Mary's purity, noble and great by her motherly care. But why dwell any longer on this? Only experience can teach the wonders wrought by Mary, wonders so great that neither the wise nor the proud nor even many of the devout can believe them.
special function of the holy slavery in the latter times. As it is through Mary that God came into the world the first time in a state of humiliation and annihilation, may we not say that it is through Mary also that he will come the second time, as the whole church expects him to come to rule everywhere and to judge the living and the dead. Who knows how and when that will be accomplished? I do know that God, whose thoughts are as far removed from ours as heaven is distant from the earth, will come in a time and a manner that men expect the least, even those who are most learned and most versed in Holy Scripture, which is very obscure on this subject. We ought also to believe that towards the end of time, and perhaps sooner than we think, God will raise up great men full of the Holy Ghost and imbued with the Spirit of Mary, through whom his powerful sovereign will work great wonders in the world so as to destroy sin and to establish the kingdom of Jesus Christ, her Son, upon the ruins of the kingdom of this corrupt world. And these holy men will succeed by means of this devotion of which I do but give here the outline and which my deficiency only impairs. Exterior Practices of the Holy Slavery of Love Besides the interior practices of this devotion, of which we've just spoken, there are also certain exterior practices which we must neither omit nor neglect. The first one is to choose a special feast day on which to consecrate ourselves to Jesus through the Blessed Virgin Mary, whose slaves we make ourselves. On the same day, we should receive Holy Communion for that intention and spend the day in prayer. At least once a year on the same day we should renew our act of consecration. The second one is to pay to Our Lady every year on that same day some little tribute as a token of our servitude and dependence, such has always been the homage paid by slaves to their masters. That tribute may consist of an act of mortification an alms, a pilgrimage, or some prayers. Blessed Marino, we are told by his brother, St. Peter Damien, was wont to take the discipline in public every year on the same day before the altar of Our Lady. Such zeal is not required, nor do we counsel it, but if we give but little to Mary, let us at least offer it with a humble and grateful heart. The third practice is to celebrate every year with special devotion the Feast of the Annunciation, which is the patronal feast of this devotion and was established to honor and imitate the dependence on which the Eternal Word placed Himself on that day out of love for us. The fourth external practice is to say every day, not however under pain of sin in case of omission, the little crown of the Blessed Virgin, which is composed of three Our Fathers and twelve Hail Marys. Also, often to recite the Magnificat, which is the only hymn composed by Mary that we possess, to thank God for His graces in the past, and to beg of Him fresh blessings for the present. Above all, we ought not to fail to say this hymn in thanksgiving after Holy Communion. The learned Gerson tells us that Our Lady herself was wont to recite it after communion.
the tree of life, its culture and its growth, or how to make Mary live and reign in our souls. Predestinate soul, have you understood by the grace of the Holy Ghost what I have tried to explain to you in the preceding? If so, be thankful to God, for it is a secret known and understood by only a few. If you have found the treasure hidden in the field of Mary, the precious pearl of the gospel, sell all that you have in order to buy it. You must make the sacrifice of yourself to the Blessed Mother. You must disappear in her so that you may find God alone. If the Holy Ghost has planted in your soul the true tree of life, which is the devotion that I have just explained to you, you must do all you can to cultivate it in order that it may yield its fruit in due season. This devotion is like the mustard seed of the gospel, which is the least indeed of all seeds, but when it is grown up is greater than all herbs and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air, etc., come and dwell in the branches thereof, and rest in its shade from the heat of the sun, and hide there in safety from the beast of prey. This is the way predestinate soul to cultivate it. This tree, once planted in a faithful heart, requires the open air and freedom from all human support. Being heavenly, it must be kept clear from any creatures that might prevent it from lifting itself to God, in whom its origin lies. Hence you must not rely on your own skill or your natural talents, on your own repute or the protection of men. You must have recourse to Mary and rely on her help alone. The one in whose soul this tree is planted must, like a good gardener, constantly watch over it and tend it, for it is a tree that has life and is capable of yielding the fruit of life. Therefore it must be cultivated and raised by the steady care and application of the soul. And the soul that would become perfect will make this its chief aim and occupation. Whatever is likely to choke the tree, or in the course of time prevent its yielding its fruit, such as thorns and thistles, must be cut away and rooted out. This means that by mortification and doing violence to ourselves, we must suppress and renounce all useless pleasures and vain intercourse with creatures. In other words, we must crucify the flesh, keep recollected, and mortify our senses. You must also keep watch on insects which might do harm to the tree. These insects are self-love or love of comfort. They eat away the foliage of the tree and destroy the fair hopes it gives of yielding fruit, for self-love is opposed to the love of Mary. You must not allow destructive animals to approach the tree of life. By these animals are meant all sins. They may kill the tree of life by their touch alone. Even their breath must be kept away from it, namely venial sins, for they are most dangerous if committed without regret. It is also necessary to water this heavenly tree often with the fervor of piety in our religious practices, in our confessions and communions, in all our prayers, both public and private, otherwise it will stop yielding fruit. 
Do not become alarmed when the tree is moved and shaken by the wind, for it is necessary that the storms of temptation should threaten to uproot it, that snow and ice should cover it, so as, if possible, to destroy it. This means that this devotion will of necessity be attacked and contradicted, but provided we persevere in cultivating it in our souls, we need not fear. Predestinate soul, if you thus cultivate the tree of life, freshly planted in your soul by the Holy Ghost, I assure you that in a short time it will grow so tall that the birds of heaven will come to dwell in it. It will be a good tree, yielding fruit of honor and grace in due season, namely the sweet and adorable Jesus, who always has been and always will be the only fruit of Mary. Happy the soul in which Mary, the tree of life, is planted. Happier the soul in which she has acquired growth and bloom. Still happier the soul in which she yields her fruit. But most happy of all the soul which relishes and preserves Mary's fruit until death and forever and ever. Amen. He who holdeth this, let him hold it. God alone. Thank you for listening to The Secret of Mary by St. Louis Mary de Montfort. Thank you for obtaining tapes produced at Holy Family Recordings. To obtain other Catholic books on cassette tapes and Catholic hymns, please write to Patrick Henry, Route 2, Box 957, Safford, Arizona, 85546. To fill in, the remainder of this tape, I choose to speak now of the brown scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel. First, because the scapular is the devotion of consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. It creates the state of union with Mary. It puts us in the atmosphere of holiness. Pope Pius XII and the Bishop of Fatima officially ratified this judgment. In an encyclical letter in July 1951, Pope Pius XII said, Let it, the brown scapular, be for all the sign of consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. The Pope is the supreme ruler in the government of the Church. As the vicar of Jesus Christ on earth, he speaks with the authority of God. However, 
To understand the importance of the Pope's statements on the scapular, it is necessary to distinguish the kinds of papal pronouncements. The Pope may speak in three different ways, each varying in authority and in their binding power. The Pope may speak as the head of the Church, ex cathedra, from the chair of St. Peter, solemnly defining some doctrine of the faith. To deny this formal pronouncement would be heresy. Or again, the Pope may speak as indicating the mind of the Church. This is done, usually, through the form of encyclicals. To deny this kind of statement would be rash and close to heresy. Finally, the Holy Father may speak as an individual in a matter that concerns the whole Church. To contradict him in such an expression would be imprudent and against the mind of the Church. His approval, even as an individual, of any devotion in the Church is a kind of visible trademark of God attesting the genuineness of that devotion. For we cannot separate from the Holy Father his unique character as Vicar of Christ. His words will always be sacred to us. The popes have never made any formal ex cathedra pronouncements concerning the scapular, but they have made pronouncements similar to encyclicals and indicating the mind of the church on the scapular, and pontiffs for many centuries have given their own private testimonies to the scapular, confirming its power and value as a sacramental par excellence. It is of these that we wish to consider. I am not going to go into all the papal pronouncements here. That would take too long. Instead, I will select those passages that are outstanding and show so strong belief in the power of Mary's scapular. Pope Leo XI, 1605, has left his scapular testament in brief but eloquent words. At the papal investiture, when his scapular was removed accidentally from his shoulders, he said, Leave me, Mary, lest Mary leave me. The next pope to have a special witness to the scapular is Pius IX, whose pontificate of 32 years is the longest in the history of the Church and ranks among the most memorial. On December 8, 1854, he defined the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. No doubt, the same love of Mary that instigated this definition also prompted him to say, This, this most extraordinary gift of the scapular from the Mother of God to St. Simon Stock brings its great usefulness not only to the Carmelite family of Mary, but also to all the rest of the faithful who wish, affiliated to that family, to follow Mary with a special devotion. The successor to Pius IX was a no less brilliant man, Leo XIII, 1878 to 1903. He is most noted, perhaps, for his encyclicals on social and labor reforms which have given him the title 
quote, the working man's pope, unquote. But to Carmelites, he is best remembered for his remarkable love for Our Lady of Mount Carmel and her scapular. He said, Its, its nobility of origin, origin its venerable antiquity, its, its extraordinary spread in the Church, the spiritualizing effects produced by it, and the outstanding miracles worked in virtue of it, render the scapular of Carmel commendable to a wondrous degree. And as he saw his death approaching, this great Pope called his close friends to his bed and said, Let us make a novena to Our Lady of the Scapular, and I shall be ready to die. In 1914, the year in which the First World War broke out, Benedict XV ascended the throne of St. Peter. Pope Benedict XV worked tirelessly to put an end to the war and to arrange a just peace. His efforts failed, and it is said he died of a broken heart. But if his pleas for peace fell upon deaf ears, his militant exhortation to Catholics to wear the scapular did not. He declared that all of you have a common language and a common armor. The language, the saying of the Gospels. The common armor, the scapular of the Virgin of Carmel, which you all ought to wear and which enjoys the singular privilege of protection even after death. A pope more familiar to us was Pius XI, 1922-1939, known as, quote, the Pope of the Foreign Missions, unquote. He was especially devoted to the little flower whom he canonized and made patroness of world missions. But long before he knew little Therese, he had come under the influence of Carmel. He was heard to say, I learned to love the scapular virgin in the arms of my mother. Now, what significance do these statements of the popes have for us wearers of the scapular? First, it should strengthen our faith in the efficacy of the scapular. The wonderful promise attached to the scapular reads so much like a fairy tale that we may forget it is not a fairy tale. In the light of these papal pronouncements, however, the last remnants of skepticism concerning the scapular should melt away. Some Catholics have been inclined to believe that the scapular and its promise are for simple, pious people only. Others underrate the power of the scapular. The inspiring words of the popes should dispel these wrong attitudes. Secondly, the papal statements give the scapular a singular prestige. They are an implicit call to action, to spread the wearing of the scapular among all the faithful. If actions speak louder than words, then there are many more eulogies of the popes on the scapular than I have recorded here. There is no instance of a pope not having worn the scapular since Simon Stock's time. If we could exhume their bodies, certainly we would find many more like Pope Gregory X. The remains of this pope, who died in 1276, 
were disinterred in 1830. There, in the old tomb, a small scapular was lying over the pontiff's shoulders, incorrupt. It is the oldest scapular extent and is now in perfect preservation in the Museum of Arezzo, Italy. Most of the popes, like ourselves, took the scapular for granted. Only when our health is suddenly threatened do we seem to appreciate it. So it is with the things of our religion. Just when he was in the chance of losing it, did Pope Leo XI realize what a precious part of his faith the scapular was. And in that moment, he expressed the intrinsic sentiments of all of us in those simple words, Leave me Mary, lest Mary leave me. To further increase our loving devotion to the scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, as the sign of consecration to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. Let us review some of the facts relating how the popes enriched the scapular. On the feast of St. Simon Stock, May 16, 1892, Pope Leo XIII gave scapular lovers a wonderful surprise. On that date, His Holiness gave to the feast of Our Lady of Mount Carmel the privilege of a plenary indulgence applicable to the souls in purgatory, to all who visit a Carmelite church. The Holy Father went even further. He made this indulgence what is known technically as a totius cotius indulgence. That is, the plenary indulgence could be gained not just once, but for each visit to the church. The Holy Father's purpose in granting this favor was, as he stated it, to increase more and more among the faithful devotion and piety towards the Most Blessed Virgin Mary of Mount Carmel, whence flows the richest and most wholesome fruits for the soul. Pope Leo XIII's expression of love for members of Our Lady's family of the scapular was the turning point of recent times in devotion to the scapular. But it is not a solitary example of the Church's concern for the brown scapular of Mary to say that, quote, the popes enrich the scapular, unquote, is to phrase in a few scant words the unparalleled record of papal interest in the garment given by the Queen of Carmel to the Catholic world. Speaking of the scapular promise, Blessed Claude de Colombier, Jesuit confessor and associate of St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, wrote in the 17th century, In that celebrated promise, Mary reveals all the tenderness of her heart. The Church has made her own the opinion of Blessed Claude, for in word and action, the popes have enthusiastically called devotion to Mary's gift. Concerning the first scapular promise, Our Lady's guarantee of salvation, the Church's attitude has always been one of approval. Carmelites have been not merely permitted, but encouraged to spread their scapular devotion to the whole world. The second great scapular promise, of delivery from purgatory on the Saturday after death was first announced in a papal document in the Sabantine Bull 
The announcement was made in 1322 by Pope John XXII. Fifteen popes since that time have added the weight of their approval to the original grant. As recently as Pope Pius X, the Sabbatine privilege is expressly mentioned by the Holy Father. When Pope Pius X extended the use of the scapular medal to all the faithful, he said that he meant to include the Sabbatine privilege of Our Lady of Mount Carmel, as well as all other spiritual favors. Speaking of the same privilege, the late Pope Pius XI said, Everyone should strive for it. It was due to the Pope's desire that the pious custom of being enrolled in the scapular might continually increase. That permission to substitute the scapular medal was extended in 1910 to all Catholics. At an earlier date, the same privilege of the medal had been given to the people in missionary countries. In 1912, the Pope of the Eucharist, St. Pius X, gave a further proof of also being a Pope of the Scapular of Our Lady of Mount Carmel by giving soldiers and sailors the unique privilege of enrolling themselves in the Scapular Confraternity. All the soldiers or sailor needs to do is put on the scapular or the scapular medal previously blessed by a priest having the power to enroll in the scapular. By the very fact of putting on the cloth, scapular, or the medal, reciting at the same time any prayer to Mary, the serviceman automatically becomes a member of the scapular confraternity. During the recent war, the scapular militia sent out millions of blessed scapulars and medals, bringing Mary's protection to servicemen. The Church's love for the scapular is shown again in the fact that the scapular feast is officially celebrated by the whole Catholic world. The Brothers of Our Lady of Mount Carmel have their own special calendar of feasts. In this calendar are included 25 separate feasts of Our Lady, some of these are not kept by the whole church, but since 1726, the anniversary of July 16th has been shared by all Catholics. It bears the name, Solemn Commemoration of the Blessed Virgin Mary of Mount Carmel. A commemoration or remembering of everything Mary has done for her children of Carmel, but particularly the glad recalling of her scapular gift given on July 16, 1251. The scapular ranks with the rosary as being the only other Marian gift to be commemorated on the Church's universal calendar. But there is one evidence of papal interest in the scapular which we have hardly mentioned up to now, and apart from the two great promises, this fact is the most outstanding thing about the scapular. I'm referring to the extraordinary number of indulgences which the popes have granted to scapular wearers. Pope Sixtus IV granted to members of the scapular confraternity all the privileges, indulgences, grants, and favors which are granted to the court of St. Francis, to the Rosary of Our Blessed Lady, or to any confraternity whatsoever. At Fatima, Mary pleaded for a consecration a consecration in which we give ourselves in a surrender of love. 
In the last apparition at Fatima, Mary gave us the outward sign of this consecration when Mary appeared as Our Lady of Mount Carmel and held the brown scapular in her outstretched hand. It is the same mark of salvation given by Mary to St. Simon Stock, saying, Whosoever dies wearing this shall not suffer eternal fire. It shall be a sign of salvation, a protection in danger, and a pledge of peace. Our Lady said nothing when she held out her scapular at Fatima. No words were necessary because Our Lady's scapular had been a sign of special dedication to her for the past 700 years. It should now remind all Catholics of consecration to Mary's Immaculate Heart. In 1929, Our Lady again returned and requested that the world, Russia in particular, be dedicated to her Immaculate Heart by the Holy Father. Twice in the year 1942, Pope Pius XII consecrated the world and Russia in particular to Mary's Immaculate Heart. Recently in the Philippine Islands, Our Lady mentioned to the little Carmelite postulant the fact that she wanted us to make our consecration to her in the spirit of St. Louis Marie de Montfort. Thank you for listening. To obtain other Catholic books on cassette tapes and Catholic hymns, please write to Patrick Henry, Route 2, Box 957, Safford, Arizona, 85546. May Jesus, Mary, and St. Joseph grant you every grace you need to live in complete uniformity with God's most holy will.